welcome to Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, Army Ranger, real estate investor, and income enthusiast. On this show, we uncover the keys to attaining financial freedom. There are so many people listening right now who are stuck in that day-to-day, nine-to-five rat race. Luckily, it's only temporary. Each week, we bring on guests that help us discover the steps to build financial freedom, passive income, and generational wealth so we can live the life we were born to live. Money is freedom. Let's get to the show. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, and today's guest is Jimmy Song. Jimmy is a Bitcoin developer, entrepreneur, and educator. He's been in the space since 2011, and his main goal is to bring sound money back into the world again. Last week, Jimmy sat down with Senator Ted Cruz to talk cryptocurrency. This week, he's sitting down with me. Wealth Science, I bring you Jimmy Song. Jimmy, welcome to the show, brother. Appreciate you taking time out of your super busy schedule to be here. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, it's kind of crazy how everything is during bull markets. And, you know, we were were discussing right before the show, just just how insane everything gets. And I feel like it's going to get even more insane in the next six to eight weeks. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Jimmy, for people maybe who don't know who you are or have never heard of you, I mean, if you don't mind just giving yourself an introduction on, you know, where you're from, where you grew up and how you kind of got to today. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm just sort of like a typical coder. I've been a I've been a programmer since I came out of college in 1998 um, from Michigan. I was a math major when I was there and uh, basically, I, I've been doing startups uh, ever since I came out of college, starting with the first one um, from w- with a friend from high school. And I, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, lo- lots of coding and at every level from like tweaking JavaScript to make the UI look nicer to tweaking, you know, database queries to make it run faster, stuff like that. So I and I've been in all sorts of industries, healthcare, e-commerce, you know, like everything, right? Like I, I've just done a ton of stuff. Uh, but I, I got into Bitcoin about 10 years ago, 2011. And I think I was uh, I was definitely very well positioned to receive it because I am a very technical person. And I'm, uh, you know, I tend to lean very libertarian. So uh, when I heard about it and saw the 21 million limit, um, I, I it, it was definitely kind of like uh, fish taking to water, right? Like it, it felt very natural to me. Not everyone has that experience. Most people tend to have as their first sort of like instinct, this is a scam. Something's wrong with this. How can this be? This uh, seems like a fad. Uh, but for me, when I saw a 21 million limit, knowing what I know about cryptography and things like that, it just it just sort of clicked. And um, and I've been in the space sort of as a, an educator in many ways. I've written three different books. Um, I've been, you know, working with different uh, in different capacities. I've taught a class at the University of Texas. I've been an expert witness in Bitcoin related cases. So um, you can say that I Bitcoin has pretty much taken over a lot of different aspects of my life. 
Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. And it's cool to hear your whole story on how coding was kind of, you know, your beginning journey and how you've kind of gotten into this. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, 10 years ago in 2011, what was kind of the thoughts around, you know, cryptocurrency and where, where exactly was cryptocurrency in 2011? I'm, I'm curious, kind of the history behind it. Yeah. I mean, even the word cryptocurrency didn't really exist in 2011, at least when I got in. Um, literally, there was just Bitcoin and that was it. And uh, the first altcoins came out later that year around August or uh, September with, uh, with, I think, like IX coin and uh, Geiskeld and all these other things that no one has ever, ever heard of. Like if, if you come in in the last five years, you, you have no idea what those things are because they've more or less gone away. And this is something that I want to emphasize is that Bit there is Bitcoin and there's altcoins. And Bitcoin is a very different animal. And altcoins have much more in common with fiat money, with US dollars, with the euro, the yen, than it does with Bitcoin because they are really, really centralized, not just a little centralized. In fact, I think I can argue that they're even more centralized than the US dollar is, which is kind of saying something. Uh, but ultimately, um, what it was like back then was it was kind of known as like drug market money, like as a internet play thing that, uh, you know, maybe some techno libertarians kind of liked or something like that. But, um, you know, like it, it had a very different sort of feel uh, than it does now, certainly uh, with like the store of value narrative and everything else. But things, things have changed drastically since 2011. Uh, you know, like it, it was a big deal when we get like even a mention in any sort of like mainstream news or cultural thing on uh, that. Now that happens like like multiple times a day every day. So a uh, very, very different environment that we're in. Um, certainly kind of wish I were back in those, uh, you know, early days so I could buy more Bitcoin. But, you know, obviously <laughs> that's not coming back. <laughs> No, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I love that what you said there at the end. It's 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 a great way to look at it. I'm, I'm curious when you talk about and you talk about this and I follow all your content, you know, the concept of centralized versus decentralized and how powerful it is to, to have decentralized. Could you just kind of expand and kind of explain that to viewers out there who might not understand that concept? Yeah. So centralized means that there is a central controller. You need permission from somebody um, to do almost anything. Um, so the US dollar is a highly centralized currency. And uh, there, there's some obvious ways in which it's centralized. So for example, if you um, you know, do something that the government does not like, they will likely take your bank account away. So if they suspect you of being a drug dealer or a child pornographer, or I don't know, I, I'm sure it's going to be like unvaccinated people or domestic terrorists or something like that very soon, um, they can and do take away your bank account, censor it in some way, or make it very difficult for you to access your money, uh, if not impossible. It's a, it's a single... Uh, you know, it's a permission system, essentially. Uh, and, uh, you know, even right now, you may think, okay, well, you know, I can, I can take my credit card anywhere and do whatever. There are lots of things that your credit card will let you do. Uh, and in fact, if your credit card gets stolen, uh, one, of, one of the weird things that it does is if you happen to buy sneakers and gas within like, uh, like 30 minutes, the second transaction will likely not go through. And it's kind of a weird thing, but that's something that they've identified credit card thieves as doing. So they just sort of prevent it altogether, knowing almost immediately, oh, this credit card is probably stolen because sneakers and gasoline. I, I, don't, I don't know why that is. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, the whole concept of centralized is that you, you have somebody in control. And particularly, this is um, true of inflation. And this is 
the monetary debasement that's happening on a continuous basis and has been since pretty much its inception, uh, 1913, with the Federal Reserve. Uh, a lot of people think that inflation is like one, two, three percent a year, and that we're sort of like historically abnormal right now at five percent or something like that. It is nothing of that kind. It is way higher than that and has been for a very long time. Uh, one way, uh, the classical definition of inflation is monetary expansion rate. Um, the rate at which it's expanding compared to the current stock and uh, the new flow of money uh, from the central bank. Um, and if you measure uh, the M2 money supply since 1959, uh, you know, in 1959, the entire stock of M2 money was uh, of US dollars was $289 billion. Currently, it is somewhere around 20 something trillion dollars. That is an insane increase. So if you annualize that, that ends up being about 7%. And not coincidentally, that's about the you know, rate of growth of the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones. It's kind of amazing how well they correlate. So that suggests that a lot of the monetary gain of these stocks is actually very illusionary, right? Like it, it, illusory rather. It, it's, uh, it, it's not really there. It's, it's just sort of keeping up with inflation. Um, and it's really only the technological advances and the capital created by all of the entrepreneurs that are out there that have made uh, the purchasing power sort of keep up relatively better than the rate of monetary expansion. So, um, you know, that that's a way in which centralization really hurts uh, everybody because they're in essence stealing value from everyone else in order to fund whatever it is that they want. And this is happening at every level, um, government, big businesses, and of course, at, at the retail level with mortgages and so on. But it is happening at every level. Um, and uh, what, what we have with centralized things is that because there is a central money printer, it causes all sorts of incentives to go completely wacko. Uh, so you, you have, for instance, uh, you know, like uh, all these like vaccine mandates being, um, you know, promulgated through society. Um, at the federal level, you could kind of understand it because you work for the government. You're going to have to do what the government tells you. Uh, but you're, we're starting to see that spread out to other sectors. So, for example, the airline industry, uh, I, I don't know if you heard about what's going on with Southwest Airlines right now. Uh, they can put pressure on these airline industries because why? Well, you know, Southwest took $25 billion in PPP loans that they don't have to pay back. <laughs> so essentially, uh, as, a, as a result, now, now they have to pretty much do whatever the government says. You're, uh, uh, it, it, money becomes a means of control. And, uh, and it's no coincidence that the fifth plank of the communist manifesto is state control of money and no other money allowed. Um, and the, that that is part uh, of what the U.S. government has certainly done and what every uh, you know, government around the world seeks to do, uh, whether uh, you know, with the IMF's blessing or not. Um, usually, if the IMF comes in, you have to have a quote-unquote independent central bank, which uh, generally means that they, uh, the IMF can put pressure on that body and not have to go through the legislature or something like that. So uh, ultimately, what, what you have is something that's very permission where wealth can be stolen away from you very easily. Um, you need permission to do almost everything. Um, that's what centralized is. Decentralized is like the opposite. It's, uh, it's something that doesn't have a central controller. So gold, for example, is decentralized. If you own some land, say, like I could go dig for gold in my backyard. And if I find some, then 
I can sell it. It's mine, right? Like, I don't need anyone's permission to go dig for gold. Uh, but, you know, if I start printing $100 bills in my backyard, I will get arrested by the Secret Service very, very quickly because that is illegal and, uh, and you're not allowed to do that. But so, you know, that, that's the big difference. And uh, the thing about decentralized commodities and decentralized money in particular is that it tends to be much more market driven. And uh, as a result, you get to store your value a lot better. Um, and gold held that role for something like 5,000 years until, you know, they started rehypothecating it in all sorts of ways and doing all sorts of weird, um, you know, financial derivatives off of it, lots of naked short selling, fractional reserve banking. Uh, which has more or less suppressed its price in the last 50 years or so um, in, in one way or another and has, you know, and thus it suffers from its inability to sort of break out of this uh, jail that uh, central bankers have more or less put it in. So um, Bitcoin represents something completely different in the sense that it is digital and decentralized. Uh, so fiat currency is mostly digital, right? Like your credit cards, your your doing transactions digitally all the time over the internet and so on. But even at the grocery store, you know, most people don't pay in cash. If you're paying with a credit card, it's all done digitally. Um, they uh, debit your account if you're using a debit card and, you know, credit the merchant and so on. It's all run uh, sort of very digitally. And that's why people use dollars and not like ounces of gold to go and shop at the grocery store. Um, so it has that sort of convenience factor, but the dollar is terrible at storing value over the long term. Gold, on the other hand, is terrible for like uh, doing like everyday transactions and so on, uh, but it does store value rather well, right? Like if you measure wealth in terms of ounces of gold, even, even with all the manipulation that's going on, you've done relatively well since like 1970 or so. Um, but, you know, it, it, Bitcoin gives you sort of like the best of both worlds. It's convenient because of its digital nature and it stores value even better than gold because of its scarce nature and its decentralized nature. Yeah, I mean, there's so many important points in there. I mean, the level of decentralization, the power of being able to store wealth. I mean, it's the credit side of it. The uh, it, it's so important. It's I, I don't want to gloss over. And and you mentioned something in there. And for people who don't know what exactly fiat money is, it, in my opinion, fiat translates to what I would call. And I don't know if you agree with this, so please tell me if you don't. You know, uh -huh. almost like fake money. I don't I don't mm. know if you have a different translation or or what what exactly is fiat money for people out there. I'm curious. Yeah, so fiat. Fiat is Latin for let there be. Uh, so like the first sentence in the Bible is fiat lux, let there be light, right? Like that's that that it's it's um it's the idea that you command something into existence. And that uh that's what fiat money is. It it has no backing. It 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 just correlates to sort of um you know currency that somebody makes out of nothing, right? Out of thin air. And th this happens all the time in the fiat monetary world where you know money is just sort of created. Um, with something like hard money, uh, it's hard in the sense that it is hard to produce. So to produce a new ounce of gold is extremely difficult. I'm told that you need to process something like 40 tons of dirt and rock to find one ounce of gold. And this is at a gold mine site. So it's, it's a tremendous amount of effort that goes in and work that goes into producing that ounce of gold. Uh, whereas with fiat money, it really literally costs 
cost nothing. It's a, it's a number in some database somewhere. And if the government wants to uh, send out STEMI checks to everybody for however much money, it happens all day long and for you know whatever amounts that they want. And there's no real resistance. I mean, there are statutory limits that Congress has put in with like deficit ceilings and everything else. But I mean, as we're seeing with like the stupid trillion dollar coin stuff, um, you know, there, there are ways around it and they're likely will that that dam will likely break and they'll just print money up the wazoo like to whatever number that they feel like. Um, but uh, ultimately, what what you have with fiat money is this ability to create money out of thin air um, and put uh, have absolutely no work behind it. And that's been the case uh uh, at least in the United States since 1913, in European countries much longer than that, and other countries maybe shorter than that. But uh, that's what every uh, country in the world pretty much runs on right now. Um, the U.S. at least nominally was on the gold standard, where you could convert dollars to gold up until 1971, when Nixon uh, cut the ties to gold and sort of temporarily suspended its convertibility. It's never been you know, able to come back from that. Um, that was 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still quote unquote temporary, but it's, it's never coming back. Back then it was like the price of gold was like 30 bucks an ounce. It's, it's not coming back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I don't think people understand the implications from all these stimulus checks and all this liquidity that's being injected into the economy, just not just on an international, but also on an international level. I mean, every time they do that, they're diluting the, the U.S. dollar and making it even more worthless. I mean, I mean, do you agree with that? Do you disagree? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, oh, definitely agree with that. And the thing is, it's diluting it for absolutely everybody in the world. Um, like the settlement currency for international trade it has been the dollar since Bretton Woods in 1944. And if you don't know about Bretton Woods, it was basically a bunch of bureaucrats that got together from all around the world that got together in a hotel in New Hampshire called Bretton Woods towards the end of World War II as a way... To, uh, to, uh, to establish a new world monetary order. Um, that, those are their words, not mine. Uh, essentially, they wanted to have a new monetary order over the world because they realized uh, with central banking and all the stuff that happened in World War I and World War II, largely because of the monetary policies that these uh, countries were able to do, they had such absolutely devastating wars uh, that, that happened largely due to the fact that uh, you know, countries can spend money that they didn't have, right? Like they could just take, uh, confiscate the wealth of everybody in their country and use it for purposes of war, which is why both wars were so incredibly devastating. If you think about World War One, for example, it was the heir to the Austria-Hungarian Empire being, uh, you know, shot by Serbian air, uh, separatists. Like that should not have gone to the degree uh, to gone um, crazy to the degree that it did, but it did because everyone could escalate as a result of fiat money. You could just print money to pay for everything. And when you want to win, you know, you just sort of get bloodlust or something and everybody just uh, keeps, keeps going. But World War, uh, towards the end of World War II, they realized something was wrong and they needed to establish a new monetary world order. And that's when Bretton Woods came along. And uh, at, at, at that conference, it was clear that the U.S. had way more leverage than everyone else, because at the time, uh, the balance of uh, payments in international trade was always settled with gold. So if uh, the US gave more supplies to England, 
and England only gave a smaller amount, the def- trade deficit was settled in gold. So um, the U.S. did that with pretty much every country around the world. And they got like a large stock of the world's gold uh, within their borders at that time. Uh, so they had enormous leverage because the world was on sort of like a pseudo gold standard at the time. So they said, you know what? You can't have gold in your vaults. You're going to put dollars in and whenever you want to convert, you're, you'll be able to. But, you know, um, so the U.S. basically got to uh, make everything based on the dollar. So because of that and uh, after 1971, converting that to the petrodollar system, where everybody that wants to buy one of the most important commodities in the world, oil, had to use the dollar to buy it. Uh, all, almost all international trade is settled in dollars, something like upwards of 90%. So that means that everyone uses dollars. So what does that mean? That means that whenever the US dollar expands, it means all of those people suffer. And this is not just central banks, which of course suffer. Um, and they usually pass it on to their citizens by expanding their own currency and, uh, and making their own citizens suffer. So every time the US steals from them, they end up stealing from their own people. So it's sort of like a a uh, game of musical chairs where the people that get screwed the most are, are are the people in third world countries. But it's also at the retail level. A lot of people in third world countries will store their value in the dollar. And this is everyone from Nigeria to Venezuela to North Korea. Um, one, one of the things that are is absolutely shocking to me is that North Korea, the North Korean black market, the most desirable currency in the North Korean black market is the US dollar. And the, the and then it's the euro, then it's the Chinese one. But everyone wants the dollar because it is the most liquid currency. And the thing is, every time the U.S. dollar expands, money is being stolen not just from U.S. citizens who at least hypothetically have some like say because you can at least vote in the president who can appoint the Federal Reserve chairman and so on. But it's stealing from those people, right? The most the poorest, most vulnerable people in the world, every time the money expands, those are the people that are stolen from. And, uh, and, and it's sick that, uh, that these people who have no recourse uh, suffer from that. So to give you an, a, a very practical example of what this all means, um, we, we know that we had like stimulus checks, PPP loans and all this other stuff uh, in the U.S., and of course, a lot of people in the U.S. benefited, but people in other countries have not. So notice, for example, that Turkey has like 40% annual inflation. They're going to hit hyperinflation fairly soon. Lebanon has been doing the same thing. They're probably going to hit hyperinflation pretty soon. But like prices in the North Korean black market, they've doubled. And those are the people that suffer as a result. So because you got your PPP loan, because you got your STEMI check, uh, the people in North Korea, in Venezuela, in Nigeria, it, it, they're, they're all suffering. And uh, like most people don't think about money this way, like as if uh, like we're all connected, but we really are. Every time you expand the monetary supply through these uh, government programs and many other ways, by the way, including your mortgage. So every time you get a mortgage, you're expanding the money supply because those loans do not come from someone else's savings. They are printed into existence on, on your behalf. So all of this is happening everywhere. Uh, and the, this is uh, inflation at a global scale. It is, this is theft at a global scale. And uh, until you recognize sort of the culpability of every single action that is happening, um, you cannot like, you know, politicians make it seem like, oh, we're, we're just sort of like kicking the can down the line. And, and like, even the best politicians will say, oh, you know, we're, 
or we're leaving this debt to our children. No, you're what, what you're doing is stealing value from the poorest citizens, uh, poorest people in the entire world. And that is uh, those are the backs on whom that you are, uh, you know, getting to play Xbox for 12 extra weeks because you get an unemployment or something like that. And that, I mean, that, that, that's what's happening. And we need to like come to terms with this and really recognize what's going on. Otherwise it's, I, I mean, it's just going to continue and they're going to, the politicians are going to continue to deceive you and you're not, not going to know that you really are causing all of these people to suffer. Yeah. I mean, I just, I know we spent like 15, 20 minutes on centralized versus decentralized and fiat money, but it's so important to the Bitcoin conversation and how it kind of sets that base and why Bitcoin is such a phenomenal uh, investment and one of the best investments you can make. So I apologize we spent so long (laughs) on that, but it's so important, Jimmy, knocked it out of the park to kind of, to kind of bring it back towards Bitcoin now. And, And again, I'm, I'm a, I'm a novice Bitcoin investor currently, mm-hmm. but could, for the people out there, could you just define exactly what is blockchain? You know, what is Bitcoin? What is DeFi and, and stuff like that? Just those three terms. Yeah. So blockchain is basically a ledger. <laughs> it's a distributed ledger. That's that's all it is. And it's a ledger like at your bank. If When you deposit uh, you know, money at your bank, what they don't do is put the hundred bucks that you deposited and put it in a drawer marked with your name. That's not how it works. They put the money in the vault and credit you a hundred dollars on their ledger. And whenever you write a check to somebody else, they debit your account and credit their account. They don't move money from your drawer to their drawer. You know, like that it, you're kind of doing that at like, sort of like a metaphysical level and not like the physical level. Uh, that's what a ledger is. Um, and basically Bitcoin is one giant ledger and that ledger is called the blockchain. And you could think of, of uh, each page in the ledger as a block, and um, each uh, each page points to sort of a previous page. This is why it's called a blockchain. It's like each pa- uh, you have many many pages of this ledger, and the new page is added essentially every ten minutes. Uh, so you you have the entire history of all transactions that have ever happened on Bitcoin in that ledger. And this is every transaction that's ever happened on Bitcoin since 2009. So 12 years of history. Um, that takes up about 300 gigabytes on a normal hard drive. Um, and that 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 contains every single transaction. But that that's what a blockchain is. Uh, a lot of people tend to sort of like make it seem like it's much more than it is, especially hucksters that want to sell you something. Uh, but that that's what a blockchain is. Now, what, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is that ledger system. And it, it, it's, uh, it's got a very clever way of making sure that uh, it is decentralized and uh, as in there is no central controller. Um, and there is sort of this emission schedule so that there is a guarantee of uh, there never being more than 21 million Bitcoin. And the way that's achieved is uh, through something called the difficulty adjustment and proof of work. I can explain both of those, but you know that gets a, that, that gets a little bit technical. But basically, um, you know, within the first four years, there was 10 and a half million Bitcoin that was made. The next four years, there was half of that or 5.25 million. And then the next four years, it was half of that or, uh, you know, uh, 2.2 uh, 6.25 million and so on. Like uh, you, it, every four years, there's exactly half of what's remaining that gets mined and so on. So that asymptotically goes towards 21 million. We're currently at like 18.9 million right now. So we, we have, um, you know, most of the Bitcoins already mined. 
Uh, but uh, but that there there are incentives and so on to make it so that you know it is it is decentralized essentially. There's no central controller and no one can shut it down. There's no single point of failure. Um, so in a way, what what I like to say is that Bitcoin is digital gold. It's got the convenience of digital things like the U.S. dollar, uh, like your credit card, like uh, Venmo or whatever, like that you want to use. Uh, but it's also got the store of value property of gold, and it's actually better than gold because. Uh, it's got an absolute scarcity, whereas uh, gold has sort of a relative scarcity. So it's very hard to mine gold out of the ground. So um, the ratio of new gold coming into the market versus the current stock of gold tends to be about um, 2%. So 2% increase in the amount of gold above ground gold that exists every year. Um, and that, that's been historically true for like 5,000 years or something like that, if, if you average it out. Uh, with Bitcoin, it, it's less than that and it continues to get less. Uh, so it's more scarce than gold is. So it's digital gold. Um, and that, that's the easiest way to think of it. I'm curious, a, a quick follow-up question. It might be a, a dumb question, but what happens, Jimmy, when we hit that 21 million mark? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, ha- I mean, like, was, is the world gonna, is the sun not gonna rise or, or what, what, <laughs> what happens? I'm curious. Nothing serious. I don't think, uh, basically miners run instead of on the block reward where new Bitcoins come into existence, they, um, you know, run on fees. Uh, so these are, uh, you know, transaction fees that are paid by people that are transacting in Bitcoin. Even if I were to send you some money on Bitcoin, you have to incentivize the miner to uh, include your transaction on, on the page, right? The, the, uh, the new page in the ledger. Um, and you do that by paying them some amount of Bitcoin. And that's uh, that, you know, after all the Bitcoins are mined, that's what they'll run on. In fact, um, you know, there have been many blocks where the fees were greater than the block reward. So um, this this happens on a continuous basis. Um, the other thing that you asked about was DeFi. And, uh, and I, I think what you mean is sort of like the thing that's going on in Ethereum. Yeah, and there's probably. an excellent article uh, by Alan Farrington and Big Al uh, called Only the Strong Survive. And it is a 48-page masterpiece on what is going on in that space. And, uh, and you really need to read it if you want to understand what's going on. But basically, um, what they argue is that DeFi is neither decentralized, it's really very, very centralized, and it is not finance because there's no actual stock of any real value there. It is all like sort of illusory and it's financial gains on top of financial gains, rehypothecation on top of rehypothecation, uh, you know, loans made from nothing, that, that sort of thing. It, it is the worst parts of the current financial system, or, or the games that Wall Street plays, all the investment banks play, uh, with all of the you know worst parts of like digitization and uh, you know like sort of at, at least those Wall Street uh, Wall Street firms and so on have some regulation around them, so that, so that there are some controls. Uh, at least DeFi, as currently constituted, is much worse than that because there aren't any of those controls and you get a lot worse behavior because you have retail involved in it. So um, it is neither decentralized nor finance, uh, but you know, like I see something like Bitcoin as decentralized and finance. So um, I would say that that's actually more accurate, but yeah, the thing that people call DeFi is just uh, absolute insanity and as they argue, like it, it is inevitable that it will collapse and collapse very hard. Uh, so I would caution any of 
any of your listeners that are into that stuff, go read that article. It is 48 pages. It is long, but it is totally worth reading because it, it, it brings to such sharp focus all the issues involved philosophically, monetarily, economically, technically, um, that uh, a lot of the people in DeFi completely gloss over. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I will get off this. And that is the first thing I'm going to do is read that <laughs> article. So I appreciate that. Like when I'm, when I'm looking at investors out there and I get this, I get asked this a lot, um, Jimmy, I'm curious your thoughts. Like, Jesse, what's the best way to invest in Bitcoin? I mean, just buying a piece of a coin and, and holding it long-term to get returns and stuff like that. Like, I'm curious what you think, what would be your recommendation to investors out there? Yeah, uh, my general recommendation is uh, something like dollar cost averaging. Just buy a small uh, amount on a regular basis, and that will probably be uh, you know better for you than almost anything else. Um, the thing is, like the current mental model of investment is complete is a complete anathema to like anything that has happened historically. Uh, you know, the entire profession of investment advisor or financial advisor that didn't really exist under the gold standard because you didn't need it. Just kept your money in gold and it did fine. And uh, it, you would have more purchasing power every year and so on. And that was normal. Uh, what, what's been corrupted is the monetary system. And it has brought this huge uh, class of quote unquote investors who are really only trying to keep up with the monetary expansion, right? So you get people that are putting money into stocks and real estate uh, as two examples uh, as a way to keep up with the monetary expansion, right? It, it's really sort of like a fiat job, if you will. It's, it's something that only exists because of fiat money. Um, so you know, the way fiat investment tends to work is that uh, there is usually some uh, level of leverage involved, uh, whether it's, um, you know, so for example, if you're doing real estate, um, you're buying on 5x leverage, right? Because you put 20% down and you get you get five times the amount uh, of value and, uh, you know, you, you have 5x uh, exposure. So, if uh, this is why like the government tries really hard to make sure that the housing market doesn't crash because if it does then everybody on 5x leverage like gets absolutely destroyed right like and you get you get like carnage absolutely everywhere um but you know this is also true uh, to some degree in stocks and many other things where people will you know take out equity on something else to you know invest in something else and so on but that that sort of thing, like leverage game is happening all over the economy and every time some leverage is being played usually that means monetary expansion and uh, th this is why governments and everybody else uh, are trying so hard to make sure that the game can keep playing. But um, ultimately, what that means is that the fiat system runs entirely on debt. And almost all fiat money is debt, right? Like it, it, well, it's all debt. And you know, rich people have lower interest rates, and poor people have higher interest rates. If you're Mark Zuckerberg, you can get one percent loans. Uh, you know, uh, using Facebook uh, stock as collateral or something like that. Um, but, you know, if you're somebody that's very poor, you're going to get 34% interest rates on your credit card, right? Like that's the only loan you can get or maybe payday loans or something like that. Um, but that that's how this entire economy is based. It's on debt. And it is horrible, horrible for people's character because what you end up doing is getting whatever you want right now and you are enslaved for the next uh, however long. And this is not true of just individuals. But companies, governments, they all get what they want right now. 
because they can leverage the hell out of it, uh, out of the monetary system. And they, uh, they end up enslaved either to the bank or to the people that funded them or, you know, you know, or whatever, right? Like the, the powers that be. Um, that, I, that I think uh, what Bitcoin allows is you, it allows you to save, right? And this is a much better thing for a character. Ask any parent, like, would you rather have your child like get what they want now and have to work it off later or make them save and get what they want at the end of the saving? Well, clearly the latter, right? Um, so that, that's the same for us too. Like if you are saving, if you are able to accumulate this is way better for you and for um, you know everything else that you're doing. So instead of buying homes on 5x leverage, imagine if you can like save for five, 10 years and buy the home, right? Like with cash. Then you don't have obligations to the bank anymore. You're not enslaved to the bank, if you will, or enslaved to the debt, uh, which uh, unfortunately is way too common. Um, that's way better. And Bitcoin lets you do that. And that's my real pitch for Bitcoin is that ultimately it lets you save. It lets you, it, it gives you sort of opportunities. The, the way that you start a business in the fiat world is you go out and raise money or essentially get loans from people, right? Like you're, 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 uh, you're borrowing lots and lots and then you have obligations to them. So you have to do what they want, not what you want. Um, whereas if you save money, uh, then you can do what you want, right? Like you can make decisions based on what you think is right instead of doing what everyone else does. And this, this was something that was very frustrating to me when I was in the startup world is that you ended up doing whatever the VC wanted. Didn't really matter what you thought the right thing was. Uh, if you thought the company was growing too fast and that you wouldn't be able to hire the right people or that the market would respond badly to something, it didn't matter because they wanted you to grow at all costs. Um, and that was very frustrating because like, if you grow slower, you can make this business a lot better. Um, but you know, they didn't want to hear that because they, they want to get to you know, unicorn status as quickly as possible. But that, that's what happens uh, is that you're really enslaved to somebody else when you're in debt. So you know, this ability to save is just enormous. And uh, you know, with Bitcoin, you have this ability to be like, if you save for five years in Bitcoin, You'll, you'll have enough to start some sort of business, right? Like you don't, you don't need to take out loans. Um, and this, is, this was the model that was prevalent all through society for thousands of years. It's only in like the last hundred that it's become normal to take out lots of debt and, uh, you know, like be up to your debt and uh, up to your eyeballs in debt and owe lots of people money in order to like survive or something. It, it, it's so stupid. Uh, yet that's what everyone falls into because that's the water we swim in. Yeah, I mean, super interesting. And I'm I'm, I'm curious if there's ever going to be a day where like people aren't putting their money in savings accounts anymore and getting like 0.0001% interest and people are just putting it in, uh, in Bitcoin. I mean, will that be a day one day? It'll, it's super interesting. But you hit on the power of saving and how crucial that is. Uh, I, I just got two more questions for you. I got to hit, and this, this is such great content. But when when looking at, I'm curious for people out there who are thinking about the actual mining process of mm. Bitcoin. I mean, do, do you support 
support, I guess. I mean, people who want to go out there, build miners and, and go about it that way. Or, or what are your thoughts, I guess, on the exact mining process of Bitcoin? I'm curious. Yeah. So almost always when people get into Bitcoin, the first thing that they think is, hey, I should go mine because that's free <laughs> money, right? Like, um, And then you find out it's, it's not so easy and procuring equipment is difficult. And your electricity rates at your home are like way more expensive than what a China or what, what someone in Midland, Texas gets. So, um, you know, you, you're going to have to know some stuff and it's, uh, it's like anything else. Uh, like people think investing is like free money because, you know, you're just moving money around that you make money. No, if you actually want to be good, you're going to put in hours of research and hours of, you know, doing all sorts of things. Um, and it's, it's work like any other work, right? Like it's, uh, you know, maybe it's a little more fun for you if you're trading in and out of stocks, but still work. It takes a lot of, a lot of your time, labor, effort, and, you know, uh, emotional health and everything else. Um, you know, there, there's a cost to be paid. So, uh, you know, stop thinking that mining is going to somehow magically give you free money. That's what, uh, like, there's no free money. Okay, guys, like that's, that's what every, every like uh, scammer wants to tell you that you can make free money somehow by doing their system or something like that. That doesn't exist. You work, you make money. That's how it is. Um, I tend to think that working on what you happen to be good at is generally a better strategy than doing something like mining or, you know, becoming, uh, you know, like a trader or something like that, which a lot of people are tempted into. Whatever you, uh, what, whatever you're good at, whatever your particular gifts or talents might be and the market pays for, that's what you should be doing. Cause that like, by definition, that's like the most efficient use of your time. Instead of spending time trying to figure out how to do mining or whatever, now, there are good reasons to go mine, right? Like if you want non-KYC Bitcoin, that's a very good way to do it, right? Like you mine it, it's fresh Bitcoin. No, it has no links to anything else and you get it. And that's great. Like that's, that's a wonderful way to make that happen. Uh, but, but, you know, no, no one else like really, uh, like there, there aren't really uh, like monetary reasons to do that. Uh, I mean, like there, there can be, but you're, you're going to be working, right? Like it's a, people tend to think you're, you're not going to work and you're going to make money or whatever. And that's the, these are what I call rent seeking jobs that everybody wants. Um, they exist in the fiat world. Like you can be a bureaucrat that does rubber stamping all day and like, you know, fleece the government out a lot of money or like even a company or something like that. But those jobs don't exist in Bitcoin. Um, everything that you do has to bring value. And if you're not bringing value, then uh, then you're not going to make money. And if you're not working, you're not going to bring value. So that's unfortunately why people think about mining. Uh, that's not the case here. You're going to have to work. And I would suggest that you work at what you're good at instead of what you have no idea about. <laughs> and I, I just love it. I, I just got to quote you, Jimmy. There is no such thing as free money. You heard it here on Wealth Science from Jimmy Sox. So true, dude. Unless uh, you're the uh, Fed, but yeah, you know, that's that's a whole other thing. Yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to hit you with before we wrap up, um, Jimmy, obviously nobody has a crystal ball, but I mean, you've been in the space for about a decade now. I mean, where do you see Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole? I mean, two years from now, 
five years from now, 10 years from now. I'm curious the future here within the next decade, as you've obviously you lived it for the last decade. What does the next decade look like in, in your opinion? Well, um, I mean, the broader cryptocurrency industry, I have no idea. Um, I, I mean, I think it's worth zero. Um, like they're scams. They're, I mean, it, it's unconscionable the immoral things that they've all done and made completely normal. They've done like they printed a ton of tokens for themselves at the beginning and then sold it to people on like completely false premises with no investment protections whatsoever. Like this is the norm and people think that that's okay. Um, in any other era, this they would have been all laughed out of the room. But in this era, somehow with enough, you know, venture capital backing, it's it's somehow considered okay. It is not okay. It is completely immoral. It is theft of the highest order. It is no better than fiat. So, I have no interest in thinking about that. I, I I think they should be worth zero. Whether or not they get there is another question entirely. Because we get uh, we we still have a lot of suckers that think, oh, I uh, you know I can make money for free. Like like we were mentioning, there is no free money, right? Like it, it's not happening. You're either paying with your loyalty compliance, or you're actually working, whether you think of it or not. A lot of people that own these coins are marketing it constantly on Twitter. What do you think you're doing? You're working for them. That's what you're doing. And uh, and you're you're probably getting paid less than like the wage that you would receive at McDonald's, um, so that that that's uh, that's one aspect of um, uh, of what I, I expect. Uh, but you know, as far as Bitcoin goes, uh, you know, the long term implication is uh, the long term value prop is really really simple. There's a fixed supply for twenty one million. And there's increasing demand. The only release valve then is price. That's it. And, uh, you know, how fast that goes up or when it goes up and, you know, whether it goes up, uh, you know, at a steady rate or is volatile or whatever, it's all really not of consequence if you're holding over the long term. And that's what I, uh, I, I, that's what it's really useful for when you, when you're able to hold it for the long term is when it's really useful. Um, and over five years or any five year period, no one has ever lost money in Bitcoin. And, uh, and in fact, most of them have done fantastically well. And it's a it's it's a well excellent savings vehicle, and dollar cost averaging is an excellent way to do it. Um, I would suggest that you know you save in Bitcoin, um, and I think a lot a lot of people will sort of uh, figure out that power within the next five to ten years, and there will be a lot more entrepreneurs that will be like, hey, you know what? I see this opportunity. I think I can make money doing this. And if you if it's your own money, you're you're gonna be a lot more careful with it, right? Like unlike a lot of the startups I was at, where they were they they wanted to get rid of their money as quickly as possible. It was insane what stuff they were spending money on. Um, you know, if you're starting your own business, you're most likely gonna want to be cash flow positive instead of you know losing money year after year for like a decade, like Amazon did. Um, you know that that's not going to be normal. You're you're going to want to make money, and I, I expect businesses like that to uh, come more online. And of course, if they're making a profit, that means that you know people really want it. So these are going to be really good goods and services, not cheap crap that you get from all these uh, you know like discount leaders or you know Cantalon winners or what, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, I mean, so many great notes in there. I mean, if I could turn the clock back 10 years, 
uh, to 2011. I, I mean, you said it in your intro. <laughs> What's the one thing I would do different? I'd buy more Bitcoin. So Jimmy, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and, and providing this incredible content. And it, it was just awesome to hear your story and, and all the incredible, uh, amazing things out there about Bitcoin. I, I'm curious. I mean, I, I don't even, uh, if people want to reach out to you, I mean, do you have a website or anything like that or, or anything, uh, a consulting service or anything, uh, if people want to follow up with you or anything like that? Yeah, so I I have a lot of uh, I have a pretty large social media presence. So you can follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Song. Also, have a newsletter, JimmySong.substack.com. It's called Bitcoin Tech Talk, and it, it uh, focuses mostly on tech, but I have a lot of economic commentary on there. Um, my latest piece is called uh, "Why All Coins Are." no different than fiat. So um, I encourage you to go read that. Um, and, you know, it basically makes the argument, hey, like Ethereum is basically fiat money. And uh, I don't understand why people are uh, putting money into that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, like consider whatever opportunities, but generally I'm very busy during public. So, uh, but but th- those are some ways to reach out to me if you really want to. Awesome. Jimmy, thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Again, we're middle of a bull market in Bitcoin. You're one of the busiest guys uh, in the world right now. So I appreciate it. And for you to take you know, an hour today to, uh, to record this means a lot. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Wealth Science Podcast. Take some time to subscribe and leave us a review. It really is the basis that helps us continue to bring on amazing guests each week. We have another incredible story to share next week, and I'm certain it's going to add value to this community. Please do not hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do to help you in your journey of attaining financial freedom. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.